It is uh, always good to be with you. Uh, it's been a while. I don't uh, remember the last time. Uh, it's uh, maybe it's uh, around a year ago, but uh, always good to uh, be with you and to be able to uh, open the word of the Lord together and uh, spend some time together. It's fun. Uh, it's an exciting month. Uh, as someone who enjoys history, church history, I always think of the end of October about the Reformation. We think October 31st of 1517 when Luther first posted his 95 theses and so on. That's good. I love the fall weather. Of course, there's football. It's starting to get, uh, for Texas, we say it's starting to get cold. Uh, it's not actually getting cold, but we I say that for Texans. They need to think that and hear that and so on. That's fine. Um, it's uh, snowing up north, by the way, uh, where I'm from, and it is actually cold there. But anyway, uh, and uh, we're celebrating in our home, hard to believe, but in uh, just a little over a week, uh, our youngest daughter will turn five. So uh, she's very excited. Uh, Adriel, our youngest, uh, excited for a birthday. Uh, her big thing is birthday cake, birthday parties, birthday decorations, birthday hats, and so on. So uh, it's... Uh, uh, a fun time, and uh, again, glad to be here. I, I want us to think uh, this morning for a little bit. I was thinking a little bit about uh, the Reformation. I don't really, I'm not here to talk really about the Reformation uh, as much as it, it was a profound time in church history where uh, there was a revisiting of Scripture for a very specific reason. And I'm more interested in the scriptural reason than the events of the Reformation. Uh, we've talked about some of those things in the past and they have their place, but, but, but more importantly, the, the question sort of that sits at the very uh, center of all the dealings that happened um, uh, back uh, during the time of the Reformation is a, is a question that I think we really need to continue to keep visiting. And the question is this, how are we, how are we made right with God? How, 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 do, how do we bridge that relationship? If we are sinful, if he is holy, uh, how are we made right with God? The reason I asked the question and the reason why that was the central issue at the time of the Reformation was the primary thinking is we need to make ourselves right with God. There's things that we need to do to be made right with God. God is not pleased if we don't do certain things. God is not pleased if we do do certain things. And so it's a list of things that must be done to try and be right with God. As a matter of fact, many would make the argument, you never know if you're right with God. You can only try. And so there's this constant striving as to what does it mean to be right with God. And, and that became the center issue. And, and again, I'm not as much interested in discussing the events of the Reformation as the biblical texts that are going to help us to answer and look at that question, how are we made right with God? Before we look at those texts, there's some implications that we need to think about, which is has to do with if, well, let's say this way. We all visit doctors. We all go and get checkups. We all go and get things examined. Imagine doing that spiritually. Imagine going for a spiritual examination when someone could look at your spiritual life and, and see how you are doing. Uh, imagine we could do it as a class. Let's say we took um, the time, your prayer time, over the last seven days, and we could just put it on the screen for everyone to see. 
right? Or, or, or maybe we could just talk about um, how you trusted God through the events of this last week or or didn't trust God, and, and, and everyone could see it. Or maybe we could just uh, display my thoughts over the last seven days. W- what tends to happen when we think about our spiritual lives, if we were to ever sort of make them public like that, is we all feel guilty. We all feel guilty because I think we often, even in we are thinking, our Christian thinking, our biblical thinking, we can get sidetracked to think that we have to make ourselves right with God. And if my prayer life doesn't necessarily look like it should, maybe I'm not right with God. If, if, if the fact that I have doubts, the fact that I might waver, the fact that someone may not react correctly in a difficult situation, we, we can sometimes think incorrectly that, that, that somehow we've, we've been removed from God and now we have to earn our way back or discipline ourselves to to get back. We we have to be restored. We have to make things right because we did what's wrong. And so there's this constant churning or this constant yearning that people have to try and make themselves right with God or get back with God or connect with God in, in some way, shape, or form. And that was the central issue when it came to the Reformation. And, and so the, the, the biblical teaching behind that, I think, is very instructive because really what I'm going to do by the end of our time together is not talk about 1517 when Luther posted his 95 Theses, but 100 years later about 1617 and what was going on after the Reformation. And so we'll get there by going through the book of Romans. And if you have your Bibles, make your way to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter Paul is writing the book of Romans, the church at Rome. He is uh, wanting to articulate the truths of the faith and bring clarity to their understanding. Um, Obviously, in a book like Romans, when we jump in, it's hard. Ideally, we should start at chapter one and then work our way all the way through, and and then you'd be here a long time. And and so we're going to jump into chapter four, but uh, um, there's a context of building that Paul is doing as he's explained, really, in, in the first early chapters of Romans, our lostness our desperate need for a savior because we are unable to save ourselves. We can't self-fix, we can't self-save, we can't even save each other. Sinful people can't save sinful people. It doesn't work, and Paul articulates that. And, and, and then ultimately to bring us to the place where he shows that there is a Savior who is sufficient and able to save. His methodology in writing this book will often go back to Old Testament passages and Old Testament saints as illustrations. In chapter 4 here, where we'll begin, uh, is no different. Paul in chapter 3 has been talking about how we can be righteous, how we can be right through faith. And now he's going to explain that. And that's part of the answer to um, the question we're wondering about. We'll pick it up in Romans chapter 4 verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now this matter is the idea of righteousness through faith. Again, that's from chapter 3. And so the question is, um, uh, what can we discover in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works or by what he did, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. So Paul is going to begin to make the argument by having us think back to Abraham back in uh, the book of Genesis, and now is quoting from Genesis 15 here, um, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now we go from Abraham to David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. From Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And Paul goes on from there. I want us to think about those seven verses just for uh, a couple of minutes, and let's sort of remind ourselves of the story of Abraham. Uh, God, in Genesis chapter 12, it's really the first place that God begins to sort of play his hand and say, here's what's going to happen. Genesis 1 to 11, God creates everything, man sins, and it's just sort of one fumble after the other of, of sinfulness and the, and the desperate consequences of that sin. And, and you really don't get a sense of where the story is going. It's just one event after the next. And then finally in Genesis 12 says, here's my plan. I'm going to take a couple and I'm going to make them into a great nation. And through this couple and through the nation that will come from them, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. He, he gives that promise that this is what's about to happen uh, in Genesis chapter 12. Now, of course, the unique thing about the couple he chose was that they were unable to have children. And, and, and Abraham is faithful in pointing this out to God that, 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 that we were unable to have children. It would be very hard for a nation to come from us when we don't have a, a single offspring. And uh, we have the various stories of Abraham and Sarah through that time period. Paul is going back to uh, what God promised Abraham and Abraham, when, when God uh, promises him sort of a second time in Genesis 15, sort of the first promise comes in Genesis 12, the second promise in Genesis 15, or, or maybe a restating of it and so on, um, Abraham responds and believes God. He trusts God. He recognizes they haven't had children. He's recognized that, that biologically it is impossible for them to have children. It's too late. That's why the ages keep coming up to remind that, that this simply isn't going to happen. And yet Abraham believes God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief is what made him right. And so this is what Paul is trying to explain. What does that mean? How is it that that works? And that's really what this passage is, is reflecting here. And so let's look back here. Uh, verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was made right by doing something, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God, Paul says. And then he gives this, this illustration from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Okay, so how is this tied together? If we, in order to make ourselves right before God, to make ourselves right with God, if you just have to work for it, then God would then be obligated to, if you could work for your righteousness, that, that he would have to be obligated to recognize you as righteous, right? You work for it, work gets wages. When you get paid for doing work, it's not a gift, 
It's an obligation, right? You're obligated because that was the arrangement. And, and so Paul is making this point here that righteousness isn't that way. The one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. The word justify simply means to make right. Who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And so there is the basic articulation that ungodly people, that would be you and me, we can be made right with God. Here, as we just follow the wording here, verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And this, of course, became the sort of the battle cry of the Reformation, that we are, we are made right through faith. We are saved through our faith in the one who saves us. Now, there's a reason why there's a big problem. You would think that's simple enough. Let's close in prayer. Finally, Rome finished on time. I know that's what you were thinking, but there's more to it. The, the, the problem that we have is, well, let's use me as an illustration. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I have been made right before God. So, for example, we can pray and I can approach the throne of the Father who is perfectly holy and I approach in complete righteousness. But I'm not. You see, the problem is that if my wife was here this morning, she's not feeling well, but if she was here, she could come up and explain exactly how unrighteous I am (laughs) at times. And others of you who I fall short of God's standards. So how is it that I'm righteous or that I'm declared righteous and I'm not? Do you see the problem? Is God just turning a blind eye? I mean, how can God look at me and say, Rome is righteous when maybe my thoughts and actions yesterday or this morning or last night weren't? You see the problem? And so at the time, many in the church, the solution to the problem was you have to be right. And it makes total sense. It's the place we always fall back to, which is even as believers in Christ and when we trust in Christ, then we commit a sin. Maybe it's a sin that we struggle with. We've dealt with it. We do it over and over. We thought we were over it. We commit to maybe it's anger or pride or whatever it might be. And and, and then we feel so guilty. And then we start to deal with God. We make deals on how we're going to fix ourselves, right? I'm so sorry. I did it again, God, please. This week, I'm going to this, 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 and this. I'm going to Come somehow I'm going to make it right. I'm going to earn my way back to God. And, and, and it comes very naturally to all of us who are sinful. We, we are quick to, to try and make things right ourselves. And this is the idea of working. And it was the common understanding. There's some reasons why, if you study church history, there's some reasons why the church sort of developed a system of, of things that you had to do, uh, things like penance, for, for example. Uh, the church primarily used a Latin translation through uh, much of the first 1,500 years, uh, not quite, more like 1,200 years or so, uh, used a Latin translation. And for the most part, when we read in our English Bibles the word repent, 
like in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. In the Latin translation that was being used through most of church history, it literally reads, do penance, for the kingdom is at hand. It's a, I want to say it's a sloppy translation. It has to do with how the meaning of words have changed in time, but nonetheless, do penance and repent to us today in our ears. Those sound like very different things, right? Doing penance has the idea of somehow earning your way back to God. Repent is not some kind of earning your way back. It's it's to 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 admit your sinfulness and and to sort of turn in the other direction. The idea. Of repentance, And so, for many, there had been a system developed where you make yourself right with God by following rules, doing things like penance and, 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 and doing certain acts, and, and, and those grew in, in time and changed and so on. And, and yet, Paul is, is arguing here for something that we still have to ask that question, how does it work that a Christian, that a believer, could be declared righteous and, and yet still be sinful. You see see the problem? We're still sinful, and yet we are righteous. The the, the word uh, justification, as uh, we see Paul here, back to verse 5, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, who who makes them right, the the idea of the word here, and really throughout, throughout the Bible, the word justify or justification is always kind of a declaration. It had been come to be understood that it was a process. You slowly made yourself right. You were slowly justified by all the things you did. And there was a long list of things you had to do. And then if you did something wrong, then there was more things you had to do to make things right. And, and so justification was understood primarily not from reading scripture, understood to be this process that really would take your whole life and hopefully by the end you'd done enough that you could get in. Now as a result, in time people realize, well, we'll probably never do enough. So then we create an intermediate time between living and the eternal presence of Christ in heaven and in that intermediate time you can finish up all the things you didn't get to do uh, in, in making yourself right during this life. And that took on the name of purgatory. And and, and so people were challenged with this basic thing of feeling guilty about trying to make themselves right before the Lord. And so the whole reason we're talking about that is we have people in our churches today who are trying to make themselves right before the Lord because we all struggle with that. Or maybe it's just me, but I struggle with that. That, that sometimes I think I've got to fix it because I'm the one who broke it. I'm the sinful one. I've got to try and make myself right. The thinking comes very easily to believers. It was the primary issue when you boil down all that happened at the Reformation. It was the primary issue. But it's kind of like it's still the primary issue. It's still something we need to remind ourselves about. And so we look at Paul and we see that that the one who trusts God, uh, I'm sorry, uh, does not do the work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We're made righteous by having faith in God. Well, that's good. W- what does it mean? You know, how, how do we develop this? How are we to, 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 to think about? Some have suggested that it used to be you had to do a whole bunch of things like penance to be made right before God. And really what Martin Luther does is he gets rid of that long list and then you only have to do one thing, you have to have faith. 
And so now you have to sort of muster up this belief on an ongoing basis that, 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 that God will forgive you. And so it's not lots of works, it's just one work. That, that faith is something that, that we do. And it's quite a perverted understanding of faith, both biblically and in light of what Martin Luther was, was articulating during the time of the Reformation. Uh, faith is not something we do, and, and so notice Paul says their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Um, it, it is not uh, something that we do, but is an accepting of what God has done. And so that's really what we need to sort of flesh out is, what is it their faith is credited to them as righteousness? What is that? Faith in what? What is it that God has done that allows us to be, and this was the big doctrinal fight during the Reformation that allows us to be simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. That is what we're claiming, right? We're claiming to be righteous. We're claiming to be made right before God. And yet our lives testify to not quite right yet, right? We we, we sin and we're righteous, and, and so we're simultaneously both, which seems to be exactly what scripture is saying. The, the, the first sort of passage, and if we had more time, we'd do all of Romans chapter 4 here, but, but we start to see that, that Abraham is used as this illustration that Abraham doesn't do anything. He simply believes that God will grant him a child, even though it doesn't seem logical in his mind how on earth that's going to happen. He believes and God says that he is credited with being righteous. He's righteous for his beliefs, even though technically his belief, he can't figure out how on earth that's going to happen. It's kind of too late in his mind. And so he doesn't work for righteousness. He's given it to him. Now, we move forward in Paul's thinking. Jump to chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, probably uh, uh, same page or next page. And we want to sort of keep going. Paul's going to help explain this a little bit more and, and move us on in our thinking here. We'll pick it up in verse 12, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we'll learn a little more how this fits together. Therefore, Romans 5, 12, Just as sin entered through the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account. There is no uh, anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, uh, who, is, uh, who is a pattern of the one to come. All right, let's start there and just see if we can sort of make sense of, of Paul's uh, thinking uh, and, and explanation. Obviously, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so what he's writing is true and, and, and accurate, and it's explaining here how we can be made right before God. And so he kind of backs up and, and says, well, how did we get made wrong before God? Okay, And so he begins, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And, and, and so the first thing Paul is establishing is where did all the sin come from? The sin really came through one man, through, through Adam. 
It's kind of interesting if you can kind of think back to Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve. You remember that they're given this, this amazing garden full of fruit trees and, and so on in life that they can live and enjoy. And they're given the command. There's two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and there's one tree that's forbidden. So there's many, many that are available and one is forbidden, the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat any fruit from that tree. And you'll remember, of course, first Eve eats and then and then Adam. She shares the fruit with Adam and Adam eats as well. And, and interesting, really, from that point on, the sin is always seen as Adam's. That, that, that Adam is sort of the representative, even if you want to be really technical, that technically Eve sinned first, it, it's Adam's sin. And so the language here is something that we're going to have to kind of work with to understand here. Just as sin entered the world through one man, that, that would have to be Adam, and death through sin, um, and this way death came to all people because all sinned. So there is some sense that when Adam sinned against God, disobeyed God, broke God's law, law was real simple back then, one law, don't eat from this tree, he broke that law. Once he did that, we did that. Somehow he did it and, and we did it and we're all sinful, we're all born sinful. And that's what Paul's going to help us to understand a little bit more. To be sure, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law was given. Okay, well, this is a, a sin is the law being the Mosaic law, the law that comes from Moses. Sin existed before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Therefore, death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. So some people would say, well, it can't be sin until there's the law. Law doesn't come till Moses. So you can't say that there's any sin between Adam and Moses because you can't sin without law. And, and, and Paul's point is this. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So Adam now is a pattern. He's a person, the first person, the first man, if you will, and so on. He's where sin begins, and now he is a pattern. All right, we'll have to see if we can figure out what that means. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man... I'm just going to put his name Adam in, just to kind of keep it clear here. The one man, that's Adam... How much more did God's grace and the gift that, the, that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? This discussion in understanding how are we made right with God is really a discussion about two men, Adam and Jesus. And, and there's a connection with us with these two men, and these two men, Paul's words, not mine, serve a pattern. So we've got to understand the pattern so that we can understand how are we made right with God. We were made wrong with God from Adam. So we're going to get some explanation here. And then ultimately we are made right with God through this man, Jesus Christ. And so it reads as follows again, verse 15. 
but the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass was the sin that Adam committed. The gift is what Jesus is giving. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought being made right with God. Justification made us justified. So we've got this back and forth. Adam's sin, Christ's gift. Adam's sin brings sin to everyone. Christ's gift is bringing grace to everyone. Verse 17, for If by the trespass of one man, Adam, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so you can see Paul is comparing back and forth. Adam, sin, death. Everyone becomes sinful because of Adam. Jesus, Life, abundance, grace, faith is being talked about. How much more, and and notice the language here, the abundant provision of grace, of the gift of of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And, And so here's this idea, this gift of righteousness. We are made right through Jesus. So remember what I said what the problem was. The problem is, as Christians, we're saying we are justified. We are made right with God. We are, we are at peace with God, Romans chapter 5. We're, we're at peace with God. And yet the problem is, even though we're righteous and we're made, we're made right and we're at peace with God, our lives reflect still sinfulness. Our, our lives still reflect brokenness. Our, our lives reflect being, if you will, unjustified. And so now we're starting to get some of the language here that uh, our righteousness in the reign of life through the one man. So our righteousness now is not our righteousness, but it's through this one man. So we have to see the world differently than the world tends to see it. Our world, especially today, is very, very, especially the Western world, is very, very individualistic. It's all about me and how I see things, and people feel free to say, I see the world this way, and they paint some crazy picture, and someone else will say, I see the world this way, and they think this, that, and the other thing. And, and what Paul is saying is, no, none of us are really individualistic. We're all tied to two people, Adam and Jesus. 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable that before God you were guilty of eating, disobeying God in the garden and eating his, uh, the fruit from the forbidden tree? I mean, that that doesn't quite feel right. I was born in 71. Okay, that, like I wasn't there. Okay, so so I, I, I don't know that that's, there's a long time. I have no idea when Adam was born. He was born at the beginning, I guess would be accurate. I was born in 71. So I, I like, I don't know how, how is it that I was, was in Adam? 
Well, well, I guess we could kind of think about Adam and Eve. I mean, they eventually have kids and, and Cain and Abel and Seth and so on, and they have children and so on. I guess we could go all the way down to Noah. And then, of course, during the time of Noah, there's the great flood, and that kind of wipes out everyone other than Noah and his family. And from there, and Noah's three sons and, and so on. I guess that's, I mean, we're all descendants from Adam, aren't we? And so once Adam is sinful, we're all descendants from him. There is a sense, a biblical sense, which is a little weird because we tend not to think this way. There's a biblical sense that we all were in Adam. And I'm choosing my words carefully because I'm going to show you in just a moment how the Bible articulates that. That there's a literal sense that we all were in the garden. We were all in Adam. We all come from Adam. And so, yes, we're all guilty of Adam's sin. We were all there. Of course, we don't have memories of being there. We weren't born, but we're descendants of those who are descendants and so on and so forth, all the way back to Adam. And so this is the language that, that I don't care whether you did something right or did something wrong, you're already being condemned for Adam's sin, whether you were right or wrong, whether you were righteous or, or unrighteous. Furthermore, not only do we get condemned for Adam's sin, but we go and sin. We go and do our own sins, and so we're guilty for his sin, we're guilty for our sins, we're guilty for our wrong attitudes and our actions and thoughts and so on and so forth. And Paul is describing this. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, we're all being condemned because Adam sinned, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for the life of all people. And yet sometimes we mistakenly think that we need to somehow try and pretend to be righteous so we can get back with God. That, that we can sort of restore the relationship. We sin and then we feel this incredible guilt that we've got to make it right. And so we try and work around Jesus because we've got our own list of things that somehow we're going to make it right, which is essentially what we try and do. Four. Verse 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as Sin reigned in death so that grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The idea is to understand Christianity, to think Christianly, to think biblically, to understand how are we made right with God, we never use a mirror. It's the wrong tool. Anytime we look at ourselves, sinful. Anytime we look at ourselves, the result of Adam, original sin, passed down through the generations, through our parents, from their parents, from their parents, so on and so on and so on, all the way back to Adam and to that original sin. We're made right, not by looking in the mirror, but by looking at the one who clothes us in righteousness. So Christianity, to understand our relationship with God, always means we're looking out. If we're looking in, we do things like, man, I don't even know if I'm a believer. I'm struggling. We, we, we have doubts because we look at our lives and our lives don't look perfected or righteous. But the language is that it's his righteousness. 
his work, his obedience. And, and, and so the, the reason we study God's word is to remind us that we tend to fall into faulty thinking. We tend to think of ourselves as building that bridge. The entire Reformation was about how are we made right? And one side was saying we are made right by doing all these things. And the other side said we've discovered that that's not exactly what the Bible says. That that, that the Bible seems to say we are made right by one man, just like we were made wrong by one man. And and so this becomes the language. And the the language is this idea of us being in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. In Christ, we have received forgiveness. In Christ, Christ, we find new life. In Christ is eternal life. What I was going to do was I was going to look up all the passages that say in Christ in the New Testament, and I was going to share them with you. But after four or five hundred of them, I thought, I don't know if they're just going to, I don't know if they're going to stick with me on this. And, and, and so over and over, that phrase, in Christ, is throughout the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. Jesus talks about, he says, if you will abide in me, in the, in the Gospel of John, he uses that same type of language, abide in me and I will abide in you, and, and, and we will bear fruit. And, and, and so then in the, in the epistles, in the letters that Paul writes, in the letters that John and Peter write, and so on, that they use this language of being in Christ, even in the book of Revelation, the language of in Christ. Christ. It's prevalent because it reminds us our righteousness is not found in us, in him. It it, it places that position. But the way that works, I could even possibly explain to you unless I would just show you in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, I just warn you, and I was... I was kind of hoping we would actually have seatbelts because this is weird. You're just going to have to sit tight here. Don't get up. It's Hebrews 7. We're just going to read it. Um, The thing is, it's true. And and that's what's going to throw us off here in just a minute. Hebrews 7 is true. But but the language is going to be, again, we're going to go back to Abraham. And and Abraham's going to be the the illustration here. So so I'll just kind of remind you about Genesis 14. If you kind of remember, God calls Abraham uh, out of the land of Ur, uh, which would be uh, uh, modern-day Iraq, not too far from Babylon, the land of Ur, and and he's called to go to this new place, doesn't tell them initially where to go, and Abraham goes with his wife, he's Abram in those days, going to get renamed Abraham, Sarai, who's going to get renamed Sarah, I'll just call her Sarah, and and then they bring their their nephew Lot as well, Uh, just... Just by the way, if you ever want to do sort of the ages in light of Abraham as the youngest and born much longer, Lot very well might actually be the same age as Abraham. As a matter of fact, it's entirely possible Lot is older than Abraham. Just kind of makes all those Bible study pictures, you know, hard because, um, the, the, anyway, it doesn't matter. Who knows how old Lot is, but, but, but he very well could be the same age. Like, they could be like, like, you know, their family, but they could be literally the same age. Or, or Lot could even be older. It's entirely possible. It doesn't matter. So they go, and you remember eventually uh, Lot, God blesses, and Lot has huge herds, and so on. Abraham uses, has huge herds. And the herdsmen start fighting with each other about getting the best land and so on. And, and then they decide they're going to divide up, and Lot will go one way. And Abram will go another way, and so on. And Lot takes the best land, and he ends up going to the land that that we're later going to know as Sodom and Gomorrah and all that. And Lot gets himself in trouble 
in Genesis 14. And Abraham raises up an army to, to go into to fight and, and sort of rescue Lot and, and save Lot. And he does that. And then he encounters a priest from the Lord named Melchizedek. Where does Melchizedek come from? We have no idea. He's just there in Genesis 14. And you think, surely we're missing Genesis 13 and a half, where we get some explanation. But there is no Genesis 13 and a half. It's just he's there, okay? So Abraham gets all the spoils from the war, from delivering Lot, and he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember this. Hang on, here we go. Hebrews chapter 7, verse, well, I've got to explain something else. <laughs> okay, so we've got to keep our timeline kind of in mind. Abraham is sort of the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham ultimately has Isaac. Isaac has twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is not part of the promise, but Jacob is, and Jacob gets renamed Israel, and that's where they get their name Israel from, okay? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we kind of think of the next generation, Joseph. Remember, Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt and so on. So all my point is we're a long way from um, where am I trying to go? To Jacob, to Jacob, okay. Uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, uh, Moses, Ooh, let's just read. He- Hebrews chapter 7. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 7, pick it up in verse, one, uh, verse 9. Okay, so this is, the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the events of Genesis 14. I tried to recapture it much better if you read it yourself. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth. Now, Levi was the tribe that the priests came from, okay? So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is the one who has all the children who become the tribe. So, we're three generations from Levi being born. Hang on, look at the language. One might even say that Levi, the priestly line who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. By three generations, right? Abraham and and Sarah are going to have Isaac. Isaac's eventually going to get married and have twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's going to marry uh, Rachel, I mean Leah, I I mean Rachel, and then then is going to have kids with Leah, and then Rachel's maidservant, and then Leah's maidservant, and then finally with Rachel. And of those kids, there's going to become 12 tribes, one of which is set apart as the priestly tribe. None of this has happened, right? When Abraham rescues Lot, there is, there is no Isaac. Isaac's not born yet. There's certainly no Isaac's offspring, right? Isaac hasn't been born. There are no tribes of Israel. There is no Levi. Look at the language. Verse 9. One might even say that Levi, born three generations later, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. So now, when, when Abraham gives money to Melchizedek, that was Levi giving it. But Levi hasn't been born yet, and not even close. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. 
I was reading something from John Kelvin. John Kelvin was quoting Ambrose. Ambrose is a fourth century uh, 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 pastor, theologian, uh, writer, and Ambrose uses the language to describe what does it mean to be in Christ. It means something like how in Levi we could be in Abraham. It also helps us to understand how we could be in Adam. We weren't born, and yet because Adam sinned, because we come from 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 Adam, we sinned. We we, we come with this sin. It's representative. There's a pattern. Adam creates the pattern of sin, and Jesus saves us in the pattern of righteousness. And so Ambrose uses this illustration, and he goes back to Isaac and, and or to Jacob and Esau. You remember how Jacob wants the oldest blessing. He's not the oldest. It, it, it might be only by a few minutes because they're twins, right? Esau's born first. Uh, Jacob's hanging on, hoping maybe he could somehow get out first, whatever happened. So, 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 so Jacob wants to be the oldest and wants the blessing of the oldest. And so what he does with his mother's approval and blessing and even suggestion is he dresses up like Esau, right? He, he puts the, Esau's got hairy arms, puts the furry garments on and, and so on and, and, and they, they cook the right meal in the right way and the smell and everything, get everything right so that Jacob can be literally in the place of Esau to get the blessing. He literally is in Esau, right? He's, he's got the Esau arms on, he's got the Esau meal baked, and, and, he's, and Ambrose uses this illustration to say there's a sense that Jacob is in Esau so that he can trick dad to get the blessing, and we are in Christ. So this idea of being in Christ is always the point of our identity, We're never looking at ourselves going, how good are we? We're sinful. We're not very good. But he is good, and we find our hope in Christ. We find our help in Christ. We find forgiveness in Christ. We find our righteousness in Christ. We find our purpose in Christ. The the central theme that comes from the theological debate that, that was going on at the time of Reformation is the recognition that the Christian finds its favor and finds its righteousness with God in Christ. It is where we get the idea of Christocentric, Christ-centered, that it is all about Christ. It's never really about us. So with a couple of minutes left, we need to ask the simple question, so what? There's really one There's one thing that has two components that I want us to kind of understand by sort of revisiting this same old debate, which is how are we made right with God? The the debate doesn't come from, it's not a biblical debate. The Bible's quite clear as to how we're made right with, with God. We're made right through Christ, through his righteousness, that we find our sin in Adam, that's what we all identify with, and yet we find our righteousness and our forgiveness in Christ. Both men are a pattern, and, and, and both men uh, um, represent all of who we are. Some have made the argument, like uh, Augustine said, they're really in the end are only two men. That's all that actually exists. Adam and Jesus were all part of one or the other and, 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 and in trying to describe this. So here's the point. Go 100 years after the Reformation starts. We generally talk about the Reformation starting in 1517. Uh, it, it really sort of gets started a little bit later when we actually get some of the doctrines uh, being developed and so on. But 1517 is fine. So go 100 years later. Let's go to England. Okay? So we're in England. We're in the early 1600s in England. Here's the good news. Everyone's a Christian. Okay, everyone's going to church, everyone's a Christian. 
everyone feels guilty. As a matter of fact, England looks 100 years after the Reformation precisely like 1516, precisely like it did before the Reformation. Everyone goes to church. Everyone's a Christian. At that time, everyone's anti-Pope and anti-Catholic in England. Who's saved? I mean, everyone's taking the name Christian. And, and, and sermons are all about the consequences of hell and how bad hell is. And, 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 that's the, and, and out of that rises another era. A group of people who say, well, hold it. Reformation isn't just sort of trying to figure out what role the, the, the church and, and, and papacy and so on has and, and, or shouldn't have and, and, and all those kinds of things. The Reformation must be by the heart because our righteousness isn't in what we do. That's what was being preached. But it was in Christ. And they became known as the Puritans. A hundred years in England after the Reformation, it was just like a hundred years earlier. They needed to be reminded, how are we made right with Christ? Because what was being preached was all these things we do. And it wasn't all the things we do. It was being and remembering and being reminded that we are in Christ. Our righteousness is found in him. It's an interesting thing that what developed out of the Reformation was the importance of going back, and, and there was a movement called a movement to the original sources of, of reading the Bible and understanding it as it had been written. And it's interesting because that's really the point of us being reminded today. Nothing in our culture, and this isn't meant to be a, sh a shot at our culture, nothing in any culture over time will ever make us think that our sufficiency is found in Christ. That's not a cultural thing, that's a Christian thing. And so for us to be in Christ, for us to live in Christ, we must constantly go back to God's word, which is the only thing that can help us understand how on earth could we be righteous and simultaneously sinful, but being made righteous, being worked on through the work of the Spirit. The Puritans are the ones who try and help us to, to remind us of these things. And, and the point is very, very simple. That in the end, the goal of evangelism, the goal of sharing the gospel, is to share the beauty of Christ. And, and I say it this way. Here's what Luther said. Sinners are attractive because they're loved by God. Sinners are not loved by God because they're attractive. The beauty that we express is not our own lives. They're primarily still somewhat a wreck, right? We, we still struggle with sin. The beauty that we put forward that we share is Christ. In order to constantly being reminded that we are in Christ we will have to be rooted in his word because nothing else will tell us that. The Reformation began <clears throat> as a return to God's word and a recognition that our righteousness was found in him. And all of us on an ongoing basis need to be reminded of that simple truth. We are made right with God because our identity is in Christ. We are in Christ. We are not in ourselves. We are either in Adam or in Christ. We are born in Adam, born in sin, 
but we are in Christ. And so what we show others is the beauty of the Savior who saves us. That was sort of the ongoing purpose that the Reformation served. Father, we are grateful that your son is beautiful and that he makes us look beautiful because he wraps us in his righteousness, that he died once for all, that he represents us before you. And so, Father, even though we are frail and and we falter in many different ways, that we can live and testify to the beauty of Jesus. And so I pray that we would be reminded of that as we continue to look in your word and over and over, we are reminded that we are in Christ, that our life is in Christ, that our righteousness is in him. And may we enjoy living that way, that we could live with joy and abundance in that, not that we are perfect, but that we are forgiven and that we can share the beauty of who Christ is, and that people can look at us and see him. And so our prayer is that you would help us into that end, that we would live out the righteousness that we have been granted, that we are made right before you by declaration because of the work of Christ. May we treasure him, may we share him, until he comes again. Amen.